This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 15th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Affirmative action as a compelling government interest has been before the Supreme Court a few times in recent years. But what does the evidence say about students who are admitted under those kinds of policies? Gail Harriet is a professor of law at the University of San Diego and is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. She spoke at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event last year. I have been t- asked to talk about academic overmatch or mismatch. Uh, It's the term we use when a student suffers educational disadvantages by attending a school where his academic credentials put him towards the bottom of the class. By definition, these are disadvantages he would not have suffered attending a school a little lower in the pecking order. In short, it's not always wise to attend a school that you got into by the skin of your teeth. Um, This problem can affect affirmative action beneficiaries, but it can also affect legacy students and athletes. I, for one, however, am more concerned about affirmative action beneficiaries because that's the group we have the biggest stake in helping. If we are hurting them instead of helping, that's very bad news. Despite all the rhetoric about race preferential admissions being about obtaining the benefits of diversity for all students, it's a cinch that few would support race preferential admissions if the mounting body of evidence supporting mismatch is true. Minority students are not public utilities. If they are worse off for receiving preferential treatment at admissions, um, then even if white students benefit from diversity, uh, it's a deal breaker. Now, does this matter in Fisher versus University of Texas other than as deep background? Well, certainly as deep background, it should, uh, but perhaps also in other ways that I'll be touching on in a few minutes. Let me begin by focusing our discussion on mismatch specifically in the area of science and engineering. This is the aspect of mismatch that is most directly relevant to the Fisher case. Back in the 1990s, the mismatch, uh, I'm sorry, uh, back in the 1990s, the Fifth Circuit told the University of Texas that it had to give up race preferential admissions. In response, the Texas legislature imposed a plan under which any top 10% graduate of a Texas high school would be entitled uh, to admission to the University of Texas. And for a while, the University of Texas was bragging that this non-discriminatory plan gave it plenty of racial diversity in its class. After Grutter versus Bollinger overruled the Fifth Circuit, UT started adding racial preferences back on top of its 10% plan, arguing at first that it needed them to have racial diversity in its science and engineering departments in particular. Nowhere is this strategy more likely to backfire. Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or STEM, just happens to be the area where the evidence in favor of mismatch is strongest. Even Professor Lempert here has had to concede, and I'm quoting him here, that there's more to this claim um, than he thinks there is to mismatch evidence in other contexts, although I understand he's still not ready to quite concede this one. Um, By my count, there are now four empirical studies uh, that find a a mismatch effect in the area of science and engineering. Students who enter college with an ambition to major in STEM, but whose entering credentials 
are at the bottom of, of their college class are less likely to follow through with that ambition than students with identical academic credentials attending schools a little further down the pecking order. Put differently, we would have more black scientists, more black engineers, more black physicians if we engaged in race neutral admissions, or at least if we lowered the level of preference given to minority students. Um, instead, race preferential admissions policies give us more unmarketable communications majors, more underwater basket weaving majors, uh, and more grievance studies majors. Uh, the four studies that I'm talking about here use multiple databases and multiple methodologies to arrive at this conclusion. They include an article uh, with Dartmouth psychology professor Roger Zelliot as lead investigator, one by UBA's Frederick Smith and John J. McArdle, an unpublished article by UCLA's Richard Sander and Roger Bolas, and a very recent article now by Duke economist Peter R.C. Diacona with his co-investigators Esteban Asejo and Joseph Hotz, uh, both of which use, the latter two of which, use University of California data. All but the UCLA study were peer-reviewed. The effects they document are not subtle. R.C. Diacona estimates that moving all science-interested minority students from UC Berkeley to UC Riverside would result in an increase in successful follow-through of 7.2 points, from a 27.5% success rate to a 34.7% success rate. That's a 26.1% increase in success. So those are pretty big numbers. A tenth of that would be terrific. Uh, Smith and McArdle got even higher increases. But let me scale that back a little. Um, in the RCD Acona study, the giant increase would involve moving all science-interested minority students to Riverside, even those who didn't need a preference to get into UC, uh, to get into UC Berkeley. It just so happens that the sweet spot for getting a science degree is a little lower uh, in the pecking order than the sweet spot for some other considerations, like getting a non-science degree. Uh, so the trade-off between the prestige and other benefits uh, and the increased chance for a science and engineering degree may not be worth it for all minority students. And remember, undermatching is as bad as overmatching is bad. We want to steer a center path, and obviously we want to give students who meet Berkeley's ordinary academic standards the choice of whether they want to go to Berkeley or Riverside or somewhere in between. So let's take, as, as the authors did, um, all the Berkeley minority students, not just the science-interested ones, uh, in, in the bottom quartile in science credentials at the University of California system-wide. That's about 25% of the minority students at Berkeley, even though as the flagship of the University of California system, you wouldn't expect to find that many of them at the bottom um, of, of UC Berkeley. If we move those students to Santa Cruz, not the bottom school in the University of California, uh, but if you move, move them to Santa Cruz, where they probably wouldn't have needed a preference, according to the data produced by R.C. Diacona, this would not only increase the likelihood that the minority student uh, would follow through with that ambition to get a STEM degree, it would also increase the likelihood um, that such students uh, would graduate with any degree. Uh, same for shifting the bottom quartile of students out of UCLA into Santa Cruz, or for that matter, Riverside for UCLA. It's a win for students seeking STEM degrees, a win for students who switch out of STEM, and for students who were never interested in STEM, uh, although in the last category it was not statistically significant. 
Um, in a recent article, Professor Lempert, um, as I said, admits that R.C. Diacona's um, article shows this kind of move would result, result in more STEM degrees. But he argues it might reduce the overall chance of graduation uh, with any degree. But that's because he was using R.C. Diacona's figures for transferring all minorities to Santa Cruz and work to Riverside, uh, where, where large numbers of, of, of minority students uh, could be overmatched. Uh, obviously, no one is arguing that minority students would be penalized, should be penalized um, for being minority students and sent to a school where they would be undermatched. There are lots of other studies that provide support for the conclusions um, of the four science mismatch studies. For example, there is a mountain of empirical evidence now that college-bound African-American students are just as interested um, in majoring in science and engineering uh, as college-bound whites, even a little bit more so. The problem is in the pipeline, um, which comes later on, about a year later, when African-American, and for that matter, Hispanic students, too, opt out of science and engineering um, in much larger numbers than whites or Asians. Uh, although that move at the end of the freshman year tends to be large for all students. Uh, Professor Lempert has recently argued that maybe the reason science-interested African-Americans opt out of science in such large numbers um, is that, and I'm quoting him here, majors like sociology and English literature are unlike science majors um, in that they offer a number of courses that focus on the situations or contributions of minorities. Good try, but no cigar. Uh, we have plenty of data showing that science-interested white students with the same academic profile um, drop out of science at essentially the same rates. The most comprehensive of these studies may, may be R.C. Diacona's Duke University study. Um, all the explanations that people come up with for the massive opt-out of STEM by affirmative action recipients have to apply to legacy admits, too, because the numbers are essentially the same. I don't think that legacy admits are opting out because sociology allows them to focus more on these situations and contributions uh, of legacies, um, or that they need more legacy role models, or for that matter, minority role models. Uh, there's no need to reach for such explanations. Let me add a few more things. Uh, the concept of mismatch should not be a bolt from the blue. Um, sociologist James A. Davis, in an article written in 1966, that is before all this got started with, with race preferential admissions, found that college students with academic credentials at or near the bottom of their class are less likely to go into high prestige careers. As Davis himself recognized, his findings tended to, quote, challenge the notion that getting into the best possible school is the most efficient route to occupational mobility. More recently, Stephen Cole and Eleanor Barber concluded that mismatch causes greater African-American reluctance to attend graduate school with an eye toward becoming academics of any kind. Most people are attracted to jobs they think they will be good at, and they tend to gauge their talents relative to those in close proximity, like their fellow students at the same institution. The evidence on graduation rates is more mixed. 
Two studies, Light and Strayer, Lowry and Garman, find that graduation rates rise when students attend schools that are a better fit for their academic preparation, while two, I believe, flawed uh, studies, Alon and Tienda and Fisher and Massey, indicate otherwise. Feel free to ask me questions about that uh, in the question and answer ses session. Uh, by far the most controversy in the mismatch area is connected to the debate over law school mismatch. Everyone agrees, including Richard Sander himself, who is the one who conducted the first such study um, and the one that has certainly gotten the most attention. Um, everyone agrees that his initial study showing that we would have more black lawyers uh, under race-neutral admissions policies is just one study and further research is necessary. Mr. Lampert here wrote one of the articles uh, taking issue uh, with Sanders' conclusions along with three co-authors. I think it was three. Um, the article pointed out, among other things, that Sanders' data was about 10 years old, and that's not, not at the time, and it's even older now. Um, it speaks volumes, however, that when Sander lied up an ideological, diverse group of scholars to examine whether his conclusions would hold up using California bar data, a much richer source of data, one of, Mr. One of, one of Professor Lempert's co-authors wrote to the State Bar of California arguing that Sander should be denied access to the data, that bar examination scores are, quote, a poor proxy for student learning, and that their disclosure, quote, risks stigmatizing African-American attorneys. The Sander team, of course, uh, had not requested any information that would have allowed them to identify particular persons. Um, the Society for American Law Teachers, um, a heavily left-leaning society of progressive law professors, wrote another letter uh, advising against disclosure uh, and warning the State Bar of California could be sued uh, if it did so. Interestingly, another of Mr. Lempert's co-authors is the former president of that society. Um, Sander had to take his case to the California Supreme Court in order to get access to the data, where he won. Uh, but for reasons you should feel free to ask me about, uh, he still doesn't have the data. It is now seven or eight years since he first asked for it. Um, I'll also save uh, until rebuttal uh, or until question and answer, any, any res responding to the criticisms or any criticisms of the Sander Law School studies, uh, there are two now, um, and Douglas Williams' study that supported it, or for that matter, any of the non-science studies uh, that do or don't support general, non not general mismatch, um, since I bet you're probably studied out by this point, um, and they don't have much bearing on the Fisher case. If I have time, I will explain why I believe that Bowen and Bach uh, which is commonly called uh, the study that refuted the notion of mismatch, why it comes a little closer to supporting mismatch rather than refuting it. Uh, but last of all, I will tell you why all this should matter to the Supreme Court. And the problem is it shouldn't. It shouldn't matter one bit. Law professors love to tell students about the famous doll experiments in the Brown versus Board of Education case. Um, and they tell their students um, that this is not a great idea for the Supreme Court to premise um, its result on social science data, which could change. Somebody else could do a doll experiment that comes out the other way. The overwhelming presumption should be against race discrimination, regardless of how social science data comes out. But alas, 
In Grutter versus Bollinger, the court deviated from its usual tough stance regarding strict scrutiny, so advocates have been given the opportunity uh, to argue that they are accomplishing something positive. In Fisher 1, the court said it would defer only on the compelling interest part of the traditional strict scrutiny test for evaluating laws and practices that discriminate on the basis of race. It held it would not defer in the future, but rather conduct a searching inquiry into whether a discriminatory policy is narrowly tailored to serve that compelling purpose. Given UT's failure even to consider the effect of science mismatch on its policy, it's difficult to see how they can claim to have narrowly tailored that policy um, if their purpose is to increase diversity um, in the science and engineering classrooms in particular. Um, it will backfire. Um, they should be, if this is their goal, uh, trying to persuade students with STEM credentials that do fit their ordinary profile um, and persuade them to come to UT instead of the Ivy League schools um, and similar schools that may well have admitted them on account of preferential treatment. I should note that UT seems to have dropped um, this argument um, at this level in the Supreme Court. And that's a very good idea, I think, for them to drop it. The problem is it's not their articulated reason in the Supreme Court that matters. It's their actual reason. And if they keep changing the reason that they're arguing for this, uh, it makes them look very bad. One purpose of the narrow tailoring requirement is to smoke out insincere professions of a compelling purpose. Um, I don't think there are very many people who really believe that UT's policy was ever an effort to secure a, a diversity of perspectives in STEM classes. Um, I believe that they are motivated by their notions of social justice. Um, and that notion of social justice has already been rejected uh, back in 1978 in the Baki case. Um, that purpose, moreover, was adopted without much reflection as to the consequences uh, of creating a class where minority students are grouped so heavily at the bottom and preferential treatment is so great. Um, if the court recognizes um, that the University of Texas's purpose is not what they have claimed, uh, its position in this litigation will be very weak. Gail Harriet is a professor of law at the University of San Diego. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>